our most gracious, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing Heavenly Father. We do thank you that through the power of technology, even though the earth should crumble, even though something as terrible as this global pandemic is happening, we can gather remotely in order to come to your word together. And Father, as we come to your word, we ask once again, Lord, that you would feed us and nourish us spiritually, feed our hearts, refresh our souls. We ask, Lord, that as we come to your word, you would remind us today of your sovereign greatness. Remind us of the fact that you are faithful even when everything feels like it's falling apart. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and minds would be turned away from the situations going on in the world right now, and that our hearts and minds would be focused on Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, from the safety of your own home, if you have your Bible with you, and I do encourage you to have a Bible with you during this time, uh, please turn to Psalm 46. We're going to be looking at Psalm 46 today, uh, the whole thing, verses 1 to 11. But we are also going to be all over the place in Scripture. So you might want to keep a thumb in Psalm 46 and have your page-flipping fingers ready to go other places as well. But today we are gathered remotely from the safety of our homes for our first live stream only service that, that we've ever done as a church. Our desire is always to be faithful to the scriptures which instruct us not to forsake the assembly of the saints, but to gather that we may encourage one another. So this is certainly not our typical protocol for Sunday morning. And we understand that this is not the same as meeting in person. But it's impossible, for example, for the members of our church to, uh, to, to, to be obedient to the one another commands uh, if we are not gathered together. Nevertheless, we are making an exception this week. Uh, just as we would cancel our services on the morning of the Lord's Day if there were to be, say, a blizzard, which would make the streets unsafe for people to drive on, uh, we do have to take the issue of the health and the safety of our members and our community into account whenever we gather. Now, unless you really pay no attention to what's going on in the world, really don't pay any attention to the news, uh, there is something of a worldwide panic going on right now as a sickness known as COVID-19 or the coronavirus has spread to the point that it has been declared a global pandemic. And it has become incredibly difficult to navigate simply because most of us have never seen anything even remotely like this in our lifetimes. And so on one hand, you have many people who are panicking. They are buying up as much toilet paper as they can possibly store, and they are buying enough hand sanitizer to fill a swimming pool. But on the other hand, 
You do have people who aren't reacting, who aren't responding to this pandemic at all. They're saying that everybody should just treat it as we would the normal flu. And what makes this issue very difficult to navigate is that both of these sides have some degree of truth. For the casual side, uh, we have to remember that the, the scriptures instruct us saying, be anxious for nothing. They're right about that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. So we don't want to be anxious. We don't want to be fearful. But at the same time, there is a responsibility that we have to protect and to preserve life. Jesus instructed his disciples in Luke twenty-two thirty-six: whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. And the reason he said that is because... It's important to protect and preserve life. So there's a balance to find here. What I'd like to do today is to help us to develop a perspective of this issue, of this pandemic, that is biblical. And there is so, so much that the Bible has to say about a situation like a global pandemic. We believe that the Bible is sufficient. We believe that it speaks to each and every situation and circumstance that we face. And this situation is no different. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is one of many, many passages in Scripture that relates to times of turmoil and trouble and distress, which is exactly what a pandemic is. This is a psalm that gives us confidence. It's a psalm that gives us comfort and hope, even in the worst scenarios and situations that we face in life. This psalm exposes the weakness of all the things, all the frail, worldly things we put our hope and trust in. And it points us instead to God's power, to his providence, to his promises, and to his faithfulness, to his purposes. This was actually the psalm that Martin Luther was so fond of, the psalm that served as his inspiration for writing the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of the greats of all time, unquestionably. Every time I listen to that song, every time I read the lyrics of that song, I'm reminded of the turmoil that Martin Luther faced, the kind of hostility that he faced uh, as he led the Reformation when he wrote this. Uh, that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is one which comforts us and fills us with confidence because the psalm that it's based on, Psalm 46, is a psalm which comforts us and fills us with confidence. Now, we can't be exactly sure when this particular psalm was written, but verse 1 does tell us that it was written uh, by, the song, by the sons of Korah. Uh, there were countless times in which the Israelites appeared to be on the verge of collapse, on the verge of defeat, but God faithfully intervened and delivered them. This psalm was unquestionably written in one of those times. It was written in what I would call the crucible of radical adversity. When it looked and it felt on the surface like the world was absolutely just falling apart, and thus it speaks to us and it redirects our thoughts and our feelings, even in a time like this when there is a global pandemic. 
The point of this psalm and the point of this message today is that whenever even the fiercest trouble arises, God is a mighty fortress unto those who seek refuge in him. That is to say, that there is no problem, there is no disease, there is no pandemic, there is no crisis, there is no situation or circumstance that is bigger or greater than he is. Nothing that takes him by surprise. And there's no situation that we will ever face that he is not sovereign over or that can stand in the way of God fulfilling his purposes and his promises. He is sovereign over the beginning He is sovereign over the end, and he is sovereign over everything in between. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, God declares, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The point of that declaration by God is that he is sovereign over all of history. From the beginning to the end and everything in between, he's the one who is in control. And thus, he's the one who is sovereign. He's the one who is trustworthy. He either causes or allows everything that comes to pass. It's all in accordance with his eternal sovereign decree. It's all in accordance with his plans and his purposes. Nothing that is outside of his will will ever come to pass. Nothing, everything, everything has some purpose, whether we understand it or not, and whether we like it or not. And so it's with this understanding, in fact, I'd say it's with this confident assurance that we come to Psalm 46 this morning. Let's start by looking at the first three verses. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. Now the first thing that we must understand here is that it is implied, in fact it is implied necessarily, that it is true that God's people do face adversity. We do encounter trouble We do face hardships and trials in life. I'm not going to pull any punches with you here, friends. Any theology that tells you that God's people are not supposed to face trouble in life is a straight-up lie. Any theology that says, oh, if you just have enough faith, you won't have any problems is false. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. God is indeed our refuge and our strength. But that doesn't render us immune from difficult or possibly even deadly situations. Christians do get sick. 
Christians do suffer. Christians do face adversity. Sometimes Christians even die from diseases. What sets us apart from the world, however, is that we don't do so alone. We, we don't do so without a certain, certain hope of what is to come, and that is the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises and purposes. What sets us apart is the confidence that there is no situation that we will ever face that is done so in vain. Not only is God with us, but God is for us. He's not a distant help. No, the psalmist says he's a present help. He's a present aid. Therefore, the psalmist writes, we will not fear. This is the blessing of knowing God and walking with God. What are some things that make us more afraid than than others? I mean, what about natural disasters? That's one of those things that makes us more afraid than, of, of than other things, right? That's, that's what the psalmist is referring to here in these first three verses, natural disasters. So the first thing that he's referring to is earthquakes. He says, though the earth should change, or as other translations say, though the earth gives way. Uh, the idea there is an earthquake. Uh, what can you do to stop an earthquake? The reality is you can't do anything to stop an earthquake. What can you do to escape it? Well, you can take refuge you know, behind a couch or under a desk or something, but there are no guarantees. Ultimately, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to guarantee your safety. An earthquake will remind you that you are absolutely powerless, that you constantly live your life on the precipice of death. All it takes is one good jolt of the earth, and any one of us could be faced with death. Nobody is immune from the dangers of natural disasters, including global pandemics. The question is, what are you going to do? To whom will you turn for help and for comfort? See, what happens when disaster strikes? What happens when the news is filled with one story after another about uh, this global pandemic and the horrible stories that we're seeing is that we realize that we've been trusting in what my friend Nathaniel Bozolich would refer to as worldly pillars of sand. When times are good and when times are safe and when times are comfortable, that's what we do. That's, even for the most mature Christian, we have this inclination to start stepping away, to start backsliding. We forget how desperately we need to be walking with and trusting in the Lord, standing on his promises, standing on his word, not just with part of our weight, but putting our weight, putting our trust entirely on his promises. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand, we just sang. Entirely. Not just half-heartedly. Entirely. The things of this world seem so good. They seem so trustworthy. They look like they will bear our weight. And yet, one natural disaster, one global pandemic, can show us how frail, how untrustworthy anything and anyone other than God 
truly is. So what a wonderful thing it is to be stricken with the reality that our sinful inclinations have caused us to shift and to put our trust partly in Christ, but partly in ourselves or partly in worldly pillars of sand, something or someone other than God. And yet those who seek and trust the Lord need not fear even the worst natural disasters. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Even if the mountains should be cast into the depths of the sea, God is our refuge and strength. And the power of the mountains and the power of the sea are nothing compared to God. Tidal waves and tsunamis are implied here as great threats, but they are weak and powerless compared to Jehovah. Even a terrible volcano loses its frightfulness in comparison to the power of God. These things are all implied here in these first three verses. We should be reminded that if, if God did not want any of these natural disasters to take place, they wouldn't. He holds sovereign power, sovereign authority, even over all the elements of nature. Matthew tells us the reaction of the disciples uh, after Jesus calmed the waves of the storm. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, we read this. The men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The point is, friends, that natural disasters are not more powerful than God. Even natural disasters are subject to God's sovereign authority. Therefore, let's think about this now, therefore, which is more reasonable to fear? The natural disaster or the God who is sovereign over the natural disaster? I mean, the answer is very clear. It's very obvious. It's God. And that's a good place to be, where you start realizing that it's better to fear God than a natural disaster. Because as Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise man knows to put his hopes not in the things of this world, not in comfort, not in health, not in financial prosperity, no, not in any worldly pillars of sand, but in God and God alone, God entirely. Natural disasters, including global pandemics, have a unique way of showing us what we have been trusting in. They have a unique way of exposing sin and stirring us to true belief and true repentance. As I was reading and studying and, and thinking about what I would be preaching today, I was reminded of Job. Isn't it interesting how the book of Job starts out by telling us that Job, quote, was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But then if you go to the last chapter, we read in chapter 42, verse 6, that Job declares before God, I repent in dust and ashes. What did he have to repent of? I mean, the book started by saying 
that Job was blameless. So I think at the beginning of the book, Job would have had no idea what he needed to repent of. But by the end, he's been made aware of the fact that even the godliest people in the world have much to repent of. What brought about this awareness in Job? Catastrophe. God ordained turmoil and trouble. Picture your life like a snow globe in a, in a little vial of, of water. When everything is calm and still, that water looks so pure. That water looks so calm, so clean. But yet, one little shake, just a little shake to the side or to the, to the bottom and all the junk all the, the sparkles, all the, the sediment that was resting at the bottom is suddenly stirred up. Friends, that's how our lives are. That's exactly how our lives are. We can look so good, so pure, so clean until a catastrophe hits, until our lives get shaken just a little bit, and suddenly all of our sin is made evident to us. For the past eight or nine years, our nation has experienced incredible, incredible economic growth. Some would even argue that it's historically unprecedented. But while that has happened, our nation has also collectively turned its back on God in historically unprecedented ways. There is a clear connection between our economic prosperity as a nation and our increasing godlessness as a nation. We've passed laws that punish those who affirm the truth of God's word and which allow and have normalized just incredible wickedness. It's as if we've forgotten who is really in charge, who really has the authority to make the rules, who really has the authority to determine what is good and what is evil. Wouldn't it be a blessing? to see in our nation true repentance and revival. But for that to happen, we have to be made aware. We first have to be made aware of how far we have turned from God. There was a time when the Apostle Paul thought that he and his ministry team were going to die. They, they faced turmoil themselves. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9, he says, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, here's the purpose, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, Paul was already a Christian at that point. And I think before this happened, if you would have asked him, Paul, how, how much are you trusting in Christ instead of yourself? I think he probably would have said, yeah, I, I, I am trusting in Christ alone. But then, but then God allowed some catastrophe, something to happen to them, that they would almost die. And suddenly, Paul realized that he was still trusting in himself far too much. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. 
Once again, do you see the purpose? It is better to be afflicted and to thereby keep our priorities straight than it is for us to live in unyielding comfort. It is better to be faced with the reality of our mortality and to therefore turn to the Lord in true faith and repentance than it is to be financially prosperous. See, friends, affliction can be a blessing. Affliction is a blessing when it forces us to recognize and to cast away our idols. It serves a good purpose when it causes us to look down and to more closely examine the ground upon which we stand. Because if we are not standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, if we're standing upon sinking sand, now's our chance to respond by repenting, by by removing our weight from the frail object we've trusted and placing entirely the entirety of our weight in God through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a good and what a gracious thing it is when God brings us to a new level of self-awareness of our need to rely entirely on Him. How blessed is the man who realizes that the worldly things he's put his hope in will fail him in the end. What a gracious, gracious blessing it is to remember in a very real way that God and God alone is our refuge and our strength in straits of present aid. Therefore, although the earth remove, we will not be afraid. Friends, God is sovereign even over the fiercest natural disasters. That means that they can't and they won't cause any harm that he doesn't allow. Even the natural elements bow in humble submission to his authority. So, if we fear God, we need not fear even the fiercest natural disasters. But God is also sovereign over the nations. Look at what the psalmist writes next. Let's look at verses 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams made glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. The city of Jerusalem is sort of unique, somewhat unique, in the sense that it wasn't built uh, on the banks of a river. But just about every ancient city was. I mean, they had to be because they needed to have an immediate water source But not Jerusalem. Jerusalem actually relied on springs. There was a time in Israel's history when the king of Syria and his army invaded Israel. Forty-six towns and villages were invaded with over 200,000 citizens taken captive by the Assyrians. As the Assyrian army 
surrounded Jerusalem, it looked certain that the city was bound to fall, and soon. The king of Assyria was prideful, and he mocked the God of Israel. The message that he sent forth, which we find in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 10 and 11, was this. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting and what are you on what are you trusting and that you are remaining in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? What a foolishly prideful thing to be boasting. He continues in verse 15, addressing the Israelites by saying, Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this, and do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his hand from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? See, King Sennacherib assumed that since Jerusalem had no immediate water source, that they would not last in battle. Little did he know that Jerusalem, King Hezekiah, had an underground tunnel which channeled water through 1,700 plus feet from the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam. This one spring provided all the water that Jerusalem needed in times of distress or war. And that stream of water was a picture of God's providence in times of trouble, in times of hardship. It's a reminder that in times of trials and tribulations from our enemies, God sends a stream of blessing, of providential blessing to his people. When every other resource is lost or shut down, God remains faithful. As Matthew Henry notes of verse 4 here, he says, This must be understood spiritually. The covenant of grace is the river, the promises of which are the streams. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved, writes the psalmist. It's a shame that the king of Assyria didn't know that. He didn't know that truth, but King Hezekiah did know that to be true. And so we read in 2 Chronicles verses 32, or chapter 32, verses 20 and 21, But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this and cried out to heaven, and the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. See, Hezekiah's confidence was not in the size of his army. King Hezekiah's confidence was not in the experience of his army whenever trouble came. No, his confidence was in the God of Israel, whose sovereign purposes will not ever fail, whose promises will never be thwarted. Even though heaven and earth seem to be shaken, God's purposes will always prevail. He is with his people. He is for his people. And like King Hezekiah, our confidence must be in the God who is so powerful that he squashes the uprising and the planning and the scheming of the nations by simply raising his voice. He raises his voice, the psalm tells us, 
and the earth melts. So the question here, friends, the question is not why should we trust in God when affliction or trouble arises. The question is, how can we not? How can we not? How foolish do we have to be to trust in ourselves or to trust in our resources or to trust in our experience or our intelligence or anything other than God? I want you to see the connection, the parallel between what we read in verses 2 and 3 and what we read in verse 6. Verses 2 and 3 say, Though the mountains slip, remember that word, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, we'll just leave it at that for now, the Hebrew words for slip and roar are the same Hebrew words that, gets tra- that get translated made in uproar and tottered in verse 6. Same words. The reason that the psalmist uses the same words in both circumstances is to show that our response in either situation, natural disasters or the nation's uprising, our response in either situation is the same. Whether we're talking about the worst things that that nature can do or the worst things that man can do, our trust is not in the things of the world. Our trust is not in ourselves. We don't seek refuge or strength from anything or anyone other than God. Whatever comes, God is our refuge. God is our strength. The things of this world will fail us. They're they're like clutching on to, to sand on a beach, clutching it as a wave washes over your hand, washing the majority of that sand right out, no matter how good, no matter how solid your grip on that sand might have been. The things of this world will fail you, friends. The things of this world will not save us. They will fail us. But God will never fail us. Jesus promised that he would build his church, and that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. What would hold his church back from storming the gates of hell? Absolutely nothing. There is no force in the entire universe that can compare to the power of God. Therefore, we will not live in fear because we know what the psalmist articulates in verse 7 we know that the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our stronghold and what can compare to him whatever problems we face from nature or from man god is the ever-flowing river who provides for and sustains us, giving us joy, giving us peace, giving us confidence, even in the most dire and desperate, even in the most frightening circumstances. He is sovereign over it all. He's sovereign over history. From the beginning to the end and everything in between, he's the one, he's the only one who is sovereign faithful, and trustworthy. So, when even the fiercest trouble arises, God is a mighty fortress, 
unto those who seek refuge in him. Let me ask you something today, friend. Wherever you are today, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're up against, do you believe that this God that the psalmist is telling us about, who speaks one word and an entire army drops dead, do you believe that this God is sufficient to deal with whatever you face, with whatever your circumstances might be? That's what the psalmist wants us to consider. That's what I want you to consider. And I want you to see that the answer is actually very clear and very obvious. Yes. Yes, God is sufficient. He is sufficient in every situation. In fact, He is beyond sufficient. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't get sick. You might. But what it means is if or when you do, you're not sick alone. If you do, if or when you do get sick, He's with you. And you are not alone. You are never, ever alone if God is with you. The psalmist now moves us to consider the ways that God has exercised His sovereign authority in the past. Let's look at verses 8 to 11. The psalmist writes, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Just as God did against the Assyrian army, when God rises up, he's able to lay waste to all of his enemies. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, that, quote, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. He has the power to create desolations in the earth. He has the sovereign authority and the power to bring an end to wars. People may rage. People may rise up. People may rebel. But God's sovereign purposes will always, always stand. He sets up kings and he removes them as he wills. He alone is God. He alone will be exalted in the nations and in all the earth, the psalmist tells us in verse 10. Even the mightiest armies on earth are no match for his sovereign power. Our response in the midst of a global pandemic, friends, is not to fear. Rather, it's to seek refuge in God. And then, Look at the instruction that we get in verse 10. Cease striving, the psalmist says. That can also be legitimately translated, by the way, as relax or be still. Cease striving and what? And know that he is God. Know that he is God. That starts with an acknowledgement that we are not. 
that we are not God, that the president is not God, that science is not God. Those things and those people cannot save you. They make for terrible sources of refuge and strength. But God, God is a mighty fortress. God is our refuge and our strength. See, friends, it's so easy and so in accordance with our sinful natures to put our trust in frail worldly things, things that death will one day take away from us. Maybe that's the number of digits in our bank accounts or the size of our nation's army or the supply of food or the the supply of, of toilet paper that we're hoping will suffice until this global pandemic blows over. And there's nothing wrong with having those things, by the way. The Bible instructs us to be wise and to plan accordingly for the future. But those things are no substitute for trusting in God. See, there's nothing wrong with having those things, but everything is wrong when we put our trust and our hope in those things instead of in God. Now, you'll notice... Verse 11 of our psalm, the psalm ends with the same thing that the psalmist said back in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Whenever you see repetition, it's something that God, who inspired the human authors to write this, wants us to take special notice of. This tells us that the way to know God And that the way to find refuge and strength in God is to know God as the Lord of hosts and as the God of Jacob. But what do those things even mean? To know him as the Lord of hosts means to know him, to acknowledge him, to walk before him as the king of heaven, the, the king of angels who rules over the universe. He is the Lord of all the armies of the angels in heaven who spoke the entire universe into existence. Now, if God can do that, here's the question that we have to ask. If God can speak the universe and everything that exists into existence, what can he not do? To know him as the Lord of hosts means to live your life in joyful submission to his authority. To know him as the God of Jacob means to know him as the God of grace who is faithful to his covenant people. Jacob faced fierce affliction. If you know anything about Jacob's story, he faced incredible affliction from a a brother who who vowed to kill him to a father-in-law who cheated and and conned him to famines, and, and the list just goes on and on and on. He faced all of this adversity throughout his entire life, and yet God was with Jacob. In fact, he was with Jacob all along, graciously providing when all hope seemed lost. You may remember that Jacob's first encounter with God that we're told about was in a vision in which he saw a ladder that stretched from heaven down to earth with angels ascending and descending on this ladder. When Jesus met the disciple Nathanael, he told Nathanael that he had seen him in a private moment under a fig tree. And Nathanael thought that that was absolutely impossible. 
He thought that he had been alone under that fig tree. The only way, in his mind, the only way that Jesus could have possibly seen him under that fig tree is if Jesus is God incarnate. And so Nathanael declared of Jesus, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And John tells us how Jesus responded in John chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. He writes, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I have said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a clear reference to Jacob's vision. What Jacob saw, what gave Jacob hope, when Jacob first believed, it was Christ that he saw. Christ is the one who came down from heaven, upon whom the angels ascended and descended. Friends, for us to know God as the God of Jacob, we too must look upon Christ in saving faith. We must see that he is the one who bridges heaven and earth. Believing in him is the only way to be reconciled unto God. That's why Jesus would say, no one comes to the Father but through me. The thing that gets repeated here in our psalm, we should see then, is an invitation to know God personally as both Lord and Savior. And so I invite you today to turn your eyes away from all the calamities and all the catastrophes that are happening in the world, all the pandemics all the panic, and to set your hearts and minds on Christ Jesus, trusting in Him and knowing Him as the one who has both the power and the sovereign authority to calm the storm, and as the one who will be with you as your refuge, as your strength, sufficient in every circumstance you face. Friends, the chief end of man is not to be self-sufficient. The chief end of man is not to progress to the point where we are the greatest generation, we are the greatest power in the universe. No, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when we do that, when we seek Him, when we trust in Him, both in seasons of comfort and in seasons of distress, we find Him to be a faithful, faithful refuge. God is in control. All power is in His hands. All authority is in His hands. Therefore, whatever we face, whatever comes up against us, we don't need to be afraid. Friends, our comfort in life and death, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, is this, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil.
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. My dear friends, if there is anything worse than facing a global pandemic, it's facing a global pandemic without the sovereign God of the universe as your refuge, as your strength, your redeemer, comforter, and confident peace, both in life and in death. We are not promised that we will survive each and every calamity and catastrophe, but we are promised that we will survive something far greater, something far worse, something far more terrifying than even a global pandemic. We will survive God's final judgment when we stand before him one day. And all who believe in Christ will be forgiven. All who believe in Christ will spend eternity in God's presence Worshiping him, spared from the fires of hell by grace. I pray, friends, I pray that God would open our eyes to the glory of his grace. That you would know him this way and that he would comfort you, protect you, and strengthen you in this way as your refuge, as your strength in all seasons of life but especially in times when we are most prone to panic and to fear. God is in control, and God is always with and for his people. Whenever even the fiercest troubles arise, God is a mighty fortress unto those who seek refuge in him. Indeed, he is a bulwark never failing. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the way that it nourishes the depths of our souls. Thank you for the way that it turns our eyes away from the things of the world and sets our hearts and minds on Christ on your goodness, on your sovereignty, on your providence. Father, we do pray today for those who are afflicted with this sickness. We pray for their recovery. We pray for their health. We pray that they would come to know you in a deeper way during this time. But we pray, Lord, especially for those who know you and are your children who are afflicted with this disease, that they may know you in a new way as their refuge, as their strength, as their present help during this time. Oh, Father, we pray for our nation and for all the nations of the world. The people would see the futility of trusting in these frail, frail things. And that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would turn hearts 
to yourself in order that Christ would be glorified. We pray for the gospel to go forth more boldly, more courageously, with greater urgency during this time. We pray for our missionaries who are in foreign nations and are facing uncertainty about the future because of this pandemic. We pray, Lord, that they too would seek you as their refuge and their strength. We thank you, God, for your continual, constant faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us and our nation in this time, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.